So uh, last fall, after we had moved into um, a different house in September, I had been looking, as the weather started getting colder, for my winter coats. But they were nowhere to be seen. I don't know if you've ever had that experience on a move, to have just found that something that you used to have just literally disappeared. And so um, it was getting colder, and I was finding myself without about five coats that I depended on um, pretty uh, heavily, um, one in particular. And then one, one day, I think it was in November, I just was down in my cellar and I was digging through a box looking for something else and then boom, all of a sudden, there they were. And I felt like Luke 15, you know, the story of the woman who finds the lost coin or um, the man, who, the shepherd who finds the lost sheep. And, and I just wanted to like throw a party that morning. I think Ben could probably attest to the fact that I came to the office pretty excited that day. Um, surprises actually arise out of a lack of expectation, out of something that we weren't expecting actually becoming the case. I wasn't expecting to find those coats. I'd given it up, and I had mourned the loss of them. But here they were. They turned up. No expectation. I was surprised. So in similar ways, if you think about moments in your life when you've been surprised, whether it's through a surprise party or a surprise promotion or um, something that you just didn't know was going to happen happening, you'll, you'll realize just after a few moments of reflection that surprise arises out of an element of lack of expectation. There's something that you didn't expect. And that sense of lack of expectation was permeating the scene in the first century after Jesus' crucifixion, particularly among his disciples' minds and hearts. There was a low level of expectation. Because just before Good Friday, the disciples' expectations had been sky high. All of their hopes... All of their lives, they had pinned upon this one called Jesus to bring about something for which they had been longing and hoping and waiting for for a long time. Think back to last week. We looked at the Emmaus Road. And the two disciples on the Emmaus Road say to Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This was our hope. Their hope, however, on the Emmaus Road was past tense. We had hoped, but no more. Death it seemed, had had the final word in their case. And while as first century Jews, their broader horizon would have included some kind of belief in resurrection in the final day when God would do his final great work, that was no consolation for them now. Their immediate horizon had been shattered, had been broken beyond repair, so they thought. Their lives had been undone. Many of them had left everything, we read in the Gospels. Many of them had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd left their way of life. They'd left their jobs. They'd walked out on the office to jump in with this man called Jesus. And just a week earlier, they had entered Jerusalem triumphantly, rejoicing. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now, this one on whom their hopes have been penned is defeated. And expectation goes out the window. Death had taken it away. So as we follow Luke's narrative in this post-Easter, Eastertide season, and the story that he narrates in chapter 24, this lack of expectation is affirmed again and again by Luke's story. First, the women are surprised at the tomb in verse 4, when they find the tomb empty as they go. Then the disciples, the the 11 and the others who are with them, are surprised in verses 9 through 11 when the women come back and they say, look, there was nobody in the tomb and we were told that he's raised. And they they couldn't believe it. They were surprised. Then Peter runs in in verse 12 to the tomb itself, sees the grave clothes laying neatly folded and finds himself 
surprised. And then, as we looked last week, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking with Jesus but not knowing it, find their hearts burning within them and surprised at the presence of Christ in their midst. And that element of surprise, because of the lack of expectation about what God would do, had continues on in this section that we're looking at tonight, verses 36 to 43. In the, in the upper room, we're told in other Gospels, where the disciples have gathered, who knows um, to do what? Well, we know in this case, they were talking about these things. So Jesus, when he appears in their midst, in verse 36, we're told that they were terrified, or they were startled and frightened. Even though the guys had just gotten back from the Emmaus Road and said, hey, Jesus was just with us. And even though when they got back, they found out that Peter, they, they, they said to, to them that, hey, the Lord has risen and, and has appeared to Simon. Even though these two things had gone on, they're sitting in the room and they're probably asking these questions. Is he really not dead? Really? Is he really back? Does he live on? Is the whole enterprise not over? Is there maybe some reason to have hope once again? Are we not fools? consigned to being confused and mistaken and mocked for the rest of our lives? Is that really not the case anymore? Could it be? Really? What just happened? These are the kinds of things I'm sure that they're batting back and forth as they're sitting in this room. What just happened? What just happened? That's the question that I want to have before us tonight. What just happened for the disciples and for us? What is this thing that took even Jesus' most devoted followers by surprise? And without much commentary, Luke just tells us the story of Jesus' encounter with his disciples in this upper room in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they're talking about these things, they're asking questions about these things, and then we can imagine as Jesus appears, and they're thinking the whole world is changing right in front of us, that they're taken back. That their old paradigms are beginning to break. That somehow the world is starting to look a little bit different. Kind of like on those first few days of spring when the trees get their buds for the first time. Something is changing. Something new is on the move. But could it be? Is he really back? And Jesus just appears and he greets them. These great words, he says, peace to you. We're not going to focus on these, but as a kind of important aside, I want to just draw our attention to these words. These were a typical and expected greeting in the first century. Peace to you. We don't typically use that in the 21st century, but this was a standard greeting back then. But peace on the lips of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke has something deeper going on with it. There's there's layers of meaning because of this word on the lips of Jesus. And I don't want to just skip over this because peace in Luke's gospel up to this point when peace is mentioned, it's mentioned in association with salvation, with the work with the final work of God that he's going to bring into the world. And so the disciples are too alarmed at the appearance of Jesus to let this kind of sink in at the moment, but we can relish in this for just a second and say that the despair And the finality of death, the extinguishing of expectation, the shattered hopes, all that they had been going through two days before since Friday. This man upon whom they had set their hope, back from the grave now, announcing peace, announcing salvation, shalom, blessing over them. If ever a man could proclaim peace in this world, 
It's the risen Jesus. The one who had just squarely faced death in the face and had overcome it in the victory of his resurrection. Our greatest enemy undone and vanquished and Jesus says, peace to you. Peace to you. Maybe that's all you need to hear tonight. Maybe I should just stop. Maybe some of you are saying, yes, just stop. (laughs) If you're still awake out there. Jesus' declaration of peace. No enemy, no circumstance, no failure, no sin, no past life, no secret sin in your life right now, no past moral failure, no present shortcoming or annoyance, no secret sin in the future, no future challenge beyond is anything that you can think of. Nothing is beyond this one who stands there with his fearful disciples and says, peace to you. And he stands over us, his fearful disciples in the 21st century and says, peace to you. Peace to you. He's got the ability to assure this. Now that doesn't mean that everything's going to work out um, happily ever after, as the fairy tales always do. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to deal with those things in your life in the way that you want him to. But it means that he has the power to assure that kind of peace in your life today and in the future. So whatever we might be facing, however hopeless our story seems to be right now, however badly heckled we are by the trials of this world, here's the resurrected Jesus saying peace to you. Just hear that message, peace to you. It's almost like they didn't hear it. They didn't really hear that. And perhaps a bit like us, and we don't hear it, they're startled and they're frightened in this narrative. They think they're seeing a ghost or a disembodied spirit. And their initial reaction brings into the foreground this essential question that I already gave to you. What exactly happened in the Easter event? And the answer that Jesus gives us in this text is straightforward, but it has far-reaching consequences for our lives and for the rest of history. So I want to ask, what happened? And then what are the consequences of what happened? And that'll finish our time tonight. What happened? So after gently rebuking them for their being troubled and their doubting in verse 38, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples beyond the shadow of a doubt that he had been raised from the dead in a physical and real way. So the first thing he does is he he says, look at my hands and my feet. They say, we think we saw a ghost. A spirit, that's the word in Greek, a spirit. We think we saw a spirit or a ghost. And there was categories for this kind of thing in the world. You can see spirits, see ghosts. Lots of people in the Greco-Roman world thought they saw spirits and saw ghosts. And so that's what they're thinking in the categories that they know. But Jesus says, you know, look at my hands. And look at my feet. And he invites them to touch them. He says, these great lines, touch me and see. Jesus says. And he explicitly answers their original hypothesis by saying this, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Verse 39. So what you're thinking is utterly wrong. I have flesh and bones. He's saying that he has a body and it's real. And then as they're still disbelieving, though this time Luke tells us it's with joy. This is the kind of disbelief that like, can it really be? It's too good to be true. And they're just kind of in this euphoria moment. Jesus takes a step further, his case that he's been bodily raised. And he asks for something to eat. 
And they give him some broiled fish. The detail here is great. And he, put, he eats this broiled fish in their presence. Ghosts, as I said on Easter Sunday, don't eat fish. Spirits don't eat fish. Bodies eat fish. And this action further demonstrates in front of his disciples the genuine physicality of Jesus' post-resurrection person. Physically, bodily raised. That's what happened on the Easter morning. Now, let me say a couple of the ramifications of what happened on Easter morning. The first thing is that because the resurrection was something bodily and physical, and that's clearly the point that Luke wants us to pick up here and that Jesus wanted his disciples to pick up at this point. Because of that, it is threatening to the world. A spirituality that says, you know, um, spiritual things are over here, but physical, real things are over here, and there's a division between the two, and so much of our world has divided into a dualistic system. Creation, the stuff of real life, the stuff that matters, and then spirituality, the stuff that's kind of for the people who live up in the clouds. And that kind of a spirituality is not threatening to the world at all. It's very domesticated. It doesn't have any kind of power and and realness to it. But resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection, a real tangible Jesus in space-time history, now that's a threat. That's a force to be reckoned with. That's something that says, this is in your face. You can't dodge this one. You can't get out away from this one. This actually happens in history. And so if you're human, this has something to do with you. If you're part of the created stuff of the world, if you've got flesh and bones, this has something to say to you. If you've got power in the world and you hold that power over others in injustice, like Caesar of Rome, this has something to say to you. So the first consequence of the physicality of Jesus' resurrection is that it is in our face. It has something to say. It's threatening to the world around us. Let me say another consequence. Let me say something about continuity and discontinuity. This is very much in this text here in front of us. In terms of continuity, Jesus' post-resurrection body is made from and continuous with his pre-resurrection body. So this claim rests upon two things. It rests upon the reality of the empty tomb. There was no body of Jesus to be discovered in the tomb where he was buried. And secondly, it rests upon what Jesus does with his disciples here in this text. Look at my hands, look at my feet. John's gospel tells us the reason he says, look at my hands, look at my feet, is because in his hands and in his feet are the marks of his crucifixion. So continuity between the old and the new. Continuity between the old and the new. In terms of discontinuity, though, Jesus' new body, it seems, unlike our body, is able to appear in places as he wishes it to. John tells us in this scenario here that the the doors were locked. Jesus appears right in front of the disciples. So Jesus disappears from the disciples that he was walking on the road to Emmaus with just before this text. Furthermore, when the disciples see Jesus appear before them, they say, oh, this is a ghost. And the disciples on the Emmaus road weren't quite able to recognize Jesus. So, yes, continuous, but Jesus' body, his post-resurrection body, was in some ways discontinuous with the body that entered the tomb. It had continuity, but it had 
discontinuity. The old body had gone through some changes. What this means is that resurrection is not simply resuscitation of an old corpse that had been living once before. Something new is on the move. Something different. The same, but not the same. And it's the new that incorporates the old, that transforms it, that completes it, that fulfills it. That's the continuity. And that's what we see in Jesus' appearance to his disciples. And this, this whole thing, resurrection, is what we call new creation. This is what we call new creation. John's gospel has a great way of telling us about the new creation. In John's gospel, there are seven signs that point to the reality of who Jesus is. Seven different miracles that point to Jesus. Seven is the number of how many days in the week? Seven. Seven completes the week. The eighth sign in John's gospel is the sign of what? The resurrection of Jesus from the grave. The eighth sign, the first day of the new week, the first thing and action of the new creation. John's gospel that begins with creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You tracking that there? New creation is what's going on in the resurrection. New creation. This longed-for, hoped-for renewal of all things is now set loose into the world as we know it. The world where dead people don't rise has had some new force break into it. And new creation is very simply our hope as people who follow Jesus. Our hope is new creation. So why do I go into continuity and discontinuity? Let me say something about how this may pertain to our lives today. This hope of new creation does not negate the world as we know it. And this is really important. As I said before, so many religions, so many systems of thought are dualistic. And this is probably best illustrated in Platonism, which everybody had to study at one time your freshman year in college. But it reappears in all kinds of forms in Gnosticism, Paganism, Hinduism, Buddhism. The created world and the bodies that we have are bad. They're shackles. They're chains. They're holding us back from experiencing the fullness of of life. If only we can escape the world and its desires and limitations, if only we can get out of the body and let the Spirit really rule the day, then we'll find true salvation. So in all of these systems, we long for redemption from creation. But the resurrection and the work of new creation in the world says that we finally have a hope, the true hope of redemption of creation. The from creation, escapism. The of creation means something to us. That's what new creation says. All this stuff, all the, per- all the matter of the world has a purpose. It has a purpose in newness, in new life, in renewal, in new creation, and not in death, decay, despair, and discarding which is what all the dualistic worldviews would tell us to believe. The bodily resurrection of Jesus assures us of that. That God isn't simply scrapping the world and starting over. He doesn't leave Jesus' body in the tomb to rot and to decay. He takes that as his clay for molding something new, much like he took the dirt from the ground in the Garden of Eden. And he's starting with the stuff of this world and then infusing this stuff with his power and grace to make something newer and better, and I'm going to invent a word, realer, realer. Somehow, this infusion of the power of God and the grace of God into the stuff of his world brings all kinds of meaning and value 
to the world that we live in today, right now, right in front of us, in ways that we're just going to start over and scrap this whole thing, does not do. Let me try to give an illustration of, of this point as to why new creation makes a difference in our world today. If Chloe, my oldest daughter who's eight, if Chloe were making a drawing at home, which she likes to do, and she's a pretty good drawer, I have to say. I'm obviously quite biased. But if Chloe were making a drawing at home, and then Mandy, who who is actually a trained artist, comes up to Chloe and looks at her drawing and says, you know, this drawing is okay, Chloe, but, but I can make it better. I can do better. And takes the drawing that Chloe made and scrumples it up and throws it in the wastebasket. And then, um, obviously, you know, Mandy wouldn't do this, but... Um, <laughs> And then starts making another drawing that's more beautiful and and, and more um, uh, mysterious and interesting and so on. And says, there, look at that. Look at how great this is. Well, we'd end up with a beautiful drawing, but something about the existing work that Chloe had done would be completely negated and discarded in that scenario. But instead, and, and how would Chloe feel, obviously... Um, this, every analogy breaks down at a lot of points, so don't take this one too far and don't talk to me about it afterwards. <laughs> so instead, let's say that Mandy comes up and puts her hand to the drawing that Chloe has already been sketching. And then maybe comes along, takes Chloe's hand and begins to infuse the trained skill of an artist who studied these things for years into her lines and her shading and her coloring. And then maybe does a few sketches on her own and and produces something that started with the stuff of an eight-year-old's drawing, but ended up with the the combined um, beauty of the master coming alongside the child and seeing this beautiful thing, this new thing come out of what had begun in Chloe's eight-year-old abilities. Well, this new drawing that then exists on the table is, is both continuous with what had begun and discontinuous with what had begun because a new power had been infused into the situation. Something new had come in and brought about new life, new skill, new color, new complexity. You see, somehow in a world of new creation, in a world of resurrection, the things that you and I are doing in the power of the Holy Spirit today matter. They make a difference. They're not just going to be crumpled up and thrown into the wastebasket. It's no surprise then at the end of the great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which we're going to read through, not, uh, not in succession, but over the next five weeks. We'll be, that will be our New Testament reading here at Church of the Cross. At the end of this great chapter on resurrection, Paul doesn't say, therefore, because of resurrection, just go out and do whatever you want. Just wait for it to come because it's coming. Verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. New creation on the loose in this world, which is what the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus represents as the first step, leads us not to escape or not to ignore or not to to downgrade, but only to upgrade, to elevate the things that God has called us to in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, with creativity, with all that we have in the world that we live in now. Resurrection reaffirms the value of today. But lest we get too carried away at our own importance, I want to end with this point. In Jesus' case, this is true. In Paul's case, this is true. And in our case, it is also true. New creation is the work of God. The resurrection of Jesus was the work of God. 
Someone pointed this out to me recently, and I thought it was brilliant. That after Good Friday comes the Sabbath. And in John's Gospel it says, Now it was the Sabbath, and the women rested. It's great how God worked this out in His providence, isn't it? That Holy Saturday was the Sabbath day. Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath day. They had wanted to go do their part and prepare the spices and prepare his body, but it was the Sabbath day. So while they were at home with their feet up on the couch, taking a nap, unable to do anything, what does God do? God begins a new world. God shatters our world by breathing new life into his son and raising him from the dead. New creation is the work of God that bursts into the scene of our creation by the work and the grace and the power of God alone. And this is true of us as well. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made alive in Christ Jesus. God breathes new life over our death. Behold, if any man is in Christ, new creation, Paul says. Our God is a great God, as we sang tonight, a resurrected God who brings forth new life from places that we least expected, even from within the rebellious and dead landscapes of our own hearts. God is at work to bring about new creation. So we end where we began, a lack of expectation. Where we least expect it, God breathes new life. The surprise of resurrection, the surprise of new creation in Luke 24 meant that Jesus' followers had no expectation of God doing a great and final work in their present day. So what about us? Do we, as you labor in a time in between the times, as you wait for the final fullness of this new life and new creation to burst forth by Jesus' coming back, Do you have expectation of the God of new creation to breathe new life, new power, new work, to come alongside you struggling at the table and to grab your hand and to grab your arm and to breathe his spirit into you? The disciples, though Jesus doesn't really let them off the hook, he says, you know, you really should have seen this coming. We'll look at that next week, with how this fulfills the story of the Old Testament. But, but we, we who live on this side of the, of the resurrection of Jesus, this side of the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, I pray that we'd have great expectation of God's work of new creation. That is our hope. That somehow redeems and makes meaningful all that we put our hands to by the power of his spirit. I pray that we'd have great expectation as God's people in this post-resurrection world.